Grab a seat. Uh, let me add my welcome this morning. My name is Alistair. If we've never met, I'd love to meet you after the service. I'm the lead pastor here at St. Pete's. Uh, and I was just kind of chuckling to myself because last week, like this is kind of like the standard height this starts at. But I've noticed that I'm kind of starting to do this throughout the sermon. And then like by the end, it's like up here. And I think I might need glasses or just a bigger font. But you didn't need to know any of that. Uh, as I read through different commentaries and scholarship on the passage we just read, uh, there was a common thread that I heard in the different voices. One person said, this is one of the most encouraging and hope-giving sections of the Sermon on the Mount and even the whole New Testament. And another person said, I cannot imagine a better, more cheering, or a more comforting statement with which to face all the uncertainties and hazards of our life in this world. But that's not always my reaction when I read this passage. Jesus says, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it'll be opened. And I read it and I can't help but think, really? I think of the many times I've asked or heard others knock and have been disappointed at God's seeming silence. To reasonable requests, to see loved ones come to know him, or to see chronic illness healed, or to see injustice throughout the world overthrown. We ask, we seek, we knock, but nothing appears to change. And Advent is a season that invites us to stay in that space, to dwell in the shadow and the tension where we wonder, where is God at work in these areas? Where is God with us in the pain of unanswered prayer? And so if you have your own doubts or reservations about the passage we just read, this morning, I want to help us see why it is, in fact, one of the most encouraging and hope-giving sections in all of Scripture and a source of comfort as we face the different trials and struggles of being alive in the world today. And in fact, this passage is essential to the Sermon on the Mount. Without these words, the vision of the kingdom of heaven that Jesus holds before us would be totally unattainable. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Matthew chapter 7. Everything's also on the screen behind me. Here's what Jesus says. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Each one is a present imperative. In other words, go on asking, go on seeking, go on knocking. Essentially, be persistent, persevere. You know, we might say, don't stop, keep at it, press on. Ask, seek, knock. There are three ways of saying the same thing. Persevere in your pursuit of the kingdom of heaven. This same teaching in Luke's gospel is actually preceded by a parable on prayer. In Luke 11, verses 5 through 8, Jesus says, Suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. I've always found that interesting. Why three loaves if only one friend has come to see you? But anyways... And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. 
I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So in this parable, Jesus summarizes perseverance in prayer as shameless audacity or shameless boldness. I like that. If you're bold in perseverance and keep asking without any shame, is Jesus saying, then eventually God will give you what you ask for? Is that his point? My two daughters love them some television. You know, Doc McStuffins or Muppet Babies or Octonauts or Storybots. You know, high quality television is not what we're watching. But as a family, we work really hard to limit screen time. Both Ansley and Maggie know that one of the Ten Commandments of our home is minimize screen time. The first rule of Stern Club is minimize screen time. But they also know when they want to push the limits, the weakest link in the parental chain is me. (laughs) And Ansley will get really sweet and snuggle up with me and say, we watch a show? And I'll say no. And she'll get sweeter, those big blue eyes. Can I watch a show? No. And then she runs upstairs. And then pitter-patter, pitter-patter. Maggie comes downstairs. Can we watch a show? No. She goes back up the stairs, and I hear her shout, he said no. And then it's quiet for a while. And I can only presume that they are creating a schedule of who will take turns asking me, because then someone comes down. Ansley, can I watch a show? No. Maggie, can I watch a show? No. Both of them, can we watch a show? No. Once in an hour, I counted 37 times. They asked me, can we watch a show? And sometimes, Julia might say, too often, I give in. Now, if we look at this parable of the pesky and yet persistent friend through this lens of my children for a moment, we might conclude that shameless boldness in prayer means we just have to wear God down until he gives us what we want. But this is not what Jesus intended with his parable. Jesus very often uses lesser to greater rhetoric. Lesser to greater. And that's what's happening in this parable. So if a tired friend is annoyed with you and eventually gives in to your demands, how much more can we expect of a good God who delights in you and wants to give good gifts to his children? So it's not that we have to wear God down. It's that God is so much better. And if you can imagine someone giving into what you need in that scenario, how much more should we expect of a God who generously wants to share good things with us? And I don't know about you, but if I see God as uninterested or stuck in his ways or that I have to somehow convince him to answer my prayers, I don't feel all that motivated to pray. I don't want to pray to that sort of God. And that's because our vision of God shapes our perseverance. Our vision of God shapes our perseverance. You see, although Jesus is inviting us to persevere in the pursuit of the kingdom here, the emphasis isn't on our own perseverance. The emphasis is actually on the character and nature of God because our vision of God will encourage or discourage our perseverance. How you see God is going to determine whether you go on asking, you go on seeking, you go on knocking, or you give up. So to what 
kind of God are we praying? That's the critical matter. And that's what Jesus goes on to illustrate in verses 9 through 11. Here's what he says. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who's in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? So Jesus, he begins to illustrate his point with absurdity. Now, at the moment, Maggie, my youngest daughter, thinks the funniest name in the whole universe is Steve. Now, imagine you have a child named Steve, and Steve is hungry. You're not going to give Steve a stone, and you're definitely not going to give Steve a serpent. It's just nonsense. You're not going to mock and ridicule your child's hunger, even if they have the most ridiculous name in the universe. Jesus is saying, now Steve's an okay name. I'm talking on behalf of Maggie here, just to be clear, Steve. You're not going to mock your child's hunger. See, again, once again, Jesus is using this lesser to greater rhetoric. Yes, we can imagine abusive parents mistreating their children, but that's not what Christ is saying here. He's saying, if even evil parents know that they have to provide good things for their children, food, basic sustenance. How much more can you expect if a good father in heaven who's generous and wants to provide for you? You see, God the Father is so much greater than even the best earthly fathers. And he's incomparably greater to evil fathers. He's exceedingly generous. He wants to give his children good things. Is that your vision of God? God is a good, heavenly Father who's generous and wants to give you good things. One of the reasons Ansley and Maggie will per persevere in asking me to watch a show is because they know I'm good toward them. You know, if each time they asked, I yelled at them or made them feel small, they would stop asking. But although they might tax my patience, they can't tax my love. And so they know they can keep asking even if the answer is no, because they know my goodness and they know my love and they're also stubborn. But mostly they trust in my love. In the same way, if our vision of God is that he is generous beyond measure, that he's a good father, that he has good things for us, then we're going to persevere. We're going to keep asking. We're going to keep seeking. We're going to keep knocking because we trust in the goodness of God. But it's at this point we have to address a challenge. And the challenge is unanswered prayer. Sometimes our prayers are unanswered because they're just too small. That happens. But there's times where legitimate prayer, legitimate desire, legitimate need is asked before God and silence. And it's painful. And we read promises like this in Scripture and we think, either this promise isn't true or something's wrong with me, but I don't know how to reconcile what I'm reading here and what I'm experiencing. And as I've reflected upon this, once again, I was really struck by what the scholar Scott McKnight has to say. So I'll quote him at length. I have no answer to the problem of unanswered prayer. 
And frankly, the typical answers don't do much for me. That God does answer, but not the way we expected. That we're to keep on praying. That we're out of God's will. That our motives are impure. That we are really only learning to adjust our wills to God's will. That we really don't want what we're asking. That the answers are given as yes, no, or wait a little longer. None of these really get to the heart of the heartfelt yearning for God to act. I don't appeal to here to, hear to mystery. Instead, I focus on who God is, and I continue to lay my petitions before that God in faith, trust, and hope. Sometimes hope lags behind our petitions, and sometimes hope sustains us. But I keep on praying because I believe God is good. Sometimes it's discouraging, and I'd be a liar if I didn't admit it. In the season of Advent, it's an opportunity to look at some of these unanswered prayers in our lives. Legitimate prayers. Prayers for things you deeply long to see happen in your life, whatever it may be. And we hold that before God and we try to reconcile it with the promise we see here and we don't know how. And the invitation is not to minimize the pain of that or to pretend like it's not disorienting. As Scott says, you'd be a liar to say that it's not hard or discouraging. And yet it's to hold that and still move toward God in hope, saying, I still believe you're good. I still believe you're generous. I still believe you're able to answer prayer. I don't know why you're not answering my prayer. And I lament that, and it's painful, and it's difficult but I will not let go of my hope. And yes, sometimes our hope lags behind and we have to kind of call ourselves there. And sometimes it's almost like hope is pulling us there. But the invitation is to continue to see God as good even when we can't understand why he's acting the way he is. And that's risky faith. But we can do this because of the promise that he is a good father who's generous and gives good things to his children. And so the question is, what are the good things or the good gifts that God is promising here? That might help us make sense of what's actually being promised. Now, in one sense, we can just say it's daily bread and basic provision. The immediate illustration Jesus uses is about food. And in the sermon, he's taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And he's even told us not to worry about food and drink and clothing, but instead to seek first the kingdom of heaven, and then all these things, food, drink, and provision, will be provided for you. So in some sense, the good things are that God will provide for your basic human needs. Seek first his kingdom, and he'll take care of you. But I think this provision can be extended beyond food. When I first uh, began to pursue my master's degree, uh, at seminary, I did it in the evenings, one class a semester. And I did that a couple of times. And then I calculated that it would literally take me 10 years to finish this degree. And I felt like that was a little too long. And so I need to pick up the speed. And so after a bit of prayer and discernment with Julia, uh, we decided that I would quit my job and go to school full time the next semester. Now at the time, I had a stable, well-paying job as a creative director at a design agency. And Julia had just finished her master's and was building her first practice and still getting clientele. And so income was like rocky at best. And our savings was modest if you're generous. 
And we didn't know how we're going to pay for rent or how we're going to pay for tuition. We just felt like God was inviting us to take this risk of faith. Now, a couple of weeks after I made that announcement, I resigned from my position, was getting ready for the semester. A client from my agency called me up and invited me out. And she said, I'm just so moved by this leap of faith that you're taking. Here's a check for all of your tuition moving forward. Now, that's not normative, (laughs) but it's amazing, and it can be common, right? God shows up in that way sometimes, and we thought, wow, thank you, Lord. Then the next week, uh, the place we were renting, this is 2009, so housing bubble, uh, the place went into foreclosure, and the landlord called us up, and he said, look, I'm done with the property. I'm going to mail you back your damage deposit, which he didn't have to do, but he did, which was super generous of him. And he said, look, why don't you just live there rent-free until the bank takes the home? So we got 10 months free rent. And so this all felt like confirmation. Okay, I'm seeking first the kingdom. I believe God's leading me to plant a church, and that first I need to go to seminary and, and figure out some stuff about the scriptures And it was affirming. And I have to tell you, like, some of the happiest days of my life were in that classroom. Like, I love being in a classroom. I love learning. I love soaking it in. I love building relationships with other adult learners and with my professors. And it was just such a joyful time. And a few semesters later, our church in Orlando, which we had been a part of for several years, offered me a part-time job as a pastor. And I felt really torn. Because I looked at what God had been doing in my life, and it seemed like he had cleared this path for me to go to school full-time, and he had provided it some pretty substantial ways. So should I take this part-time job, or should I focus and get things done so I could move on with the business of church planting? And so I scheduled a one-day retreat at a retreat center to seek God in solitude and in prayer. And after a few hours of, of trying to still my heart and mind and dwelling on scriptures, God put this scripture on my heart. And as I meditated on what Matthew records here, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, this is a good gift. Take the job. It's a good gift. You won't be able to see it right now, but it's a good gift. So I took the job. And it was a hard job, but it was a wonderful job. And I had to slow down seminary a little bit. But through that process, my relationship with the church, which was already very good, deepened and enriched. And I was developed and I was invested in And frankly, without that uh, relationship, I'm not sure St. Peter's Fireside would even exist. Summit Church in Orlando, Florida has given more than probably all of our other donors combined. They have just poured out generously to see this thing happen. And it's because they're seeking the kingdom with me. And as we seek the kingdom, God provides. Now, I share all of that reluctantly. I want to share it because I think that part of my story is beautiful and I attribute it to the work of God. But as I said, it's not normative. It's common. I've heard stories like this in other people's lives. But we also know of times where we step out in faith and we just kind of are free-falling. We're like, Lord, are you going to show up? Are you going to provide? What's going on? Our acts of faithfulness can never force God's hand. Ever. Because if that's our motive, then we're not actually stepping out in faith. Are we? We're stepping out in manipulation. I will do this so long as you do this. But when we seek first the kingdom, God makes a way. 
It's not always the way we imagine. It's not always the way we think to ask. But when we seek first his kingdom, God makes a way and he's able to provide. Now, after all of that, I'm going to say this. That is too small of an answer to what are the good things. Because what we actually need to ask is, why does Jesus teach this at this particular moment of the Sermon on the Mount? Why does this ask, knock, and seek language appear here and maybe not sooner in the Sermon on the Mount? Now, if we're really paying attention, the Sermon on the Mount is about to finish. It's coming to a close. In fact, there's just one more sermon. But we're a long way into Jesus' teaching. And anyone who's really been listening to what he's saying here is probably starting to feel overwhelmed. Just start with the Beatitudes. Being poor in spirit or mourning or meekness or hungering or being persecuted. Think about his approach to the law when he says, if you're even angry towards someone, you'll be as liable for breaking the law as someone who murdered. If you feel lustful towards someone, you're as liable to breaking the law as someone who committed adultery. And let's not forget that he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And then he keeps piling on these ethical instructions that are just so counterintuitive to us. Hey, don't worry about what you're going to wear or how you're going to get bread on the table. Seek first the kingdom and God will provide for you. And hey, with your finances, don't worry about investing them in the right way, but invest them into the kingdom of heaven and God will take care of you. I mean, this is countercultural teaching and it seems to get piles up and up and it's who can attain this? Who can actually do this? Who can actually put this into practice? Now, you could read the whole Sermon on the Mount in one sitting and say, well, I'm going to try. And you could strive with all diligence. You could memorize every single word. You could recite it to yourself daily from memory. You could try in every circumstance to live into the kingdom. And yet the kingdom of God is unattainable for us. That is the message of Advent, that God had to send the king into our midst so we could find our way into the kingdom. And did you notice that almost nonchalantly, Jesus slips in like a hardcore insult. You who are evil. You who are evil. Now, I don't want you to think of sociopaths and psychopaths alone. I don't want you to think of these extreme forms of evil that we usually reserve that word for. What Jesus is saying is that evil is when your mind or your heart or the way you live is out of alignment with the kingdom he's described here. When you fail to love God and love your neighbor, it's a form of evil. Because evil is the opposite of loving devotion to God expressed in your love toward others. So on some level, our fundamental nature is opposed to the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter how hard you strive or how hard you try to live out his teachings by default, we can't do it. There's something within us opposed to the ways of the kingdom. And in one little teaching, Jesus undoes all of our striving. He says, you'll never earn your place in the kingdom. You'll never force your way in. You can't do it. But guess what? All you have to do is ask, knock, and seek. And God will open up his kingdom for you.
That's it. And so it's not that we become hopelessly passive, that we don't put in any effort. Again, this is about perseverance. You go on asking, you go on knocking, you go on seeking the kingdom of God. You can't strive your way in. You can't force your way in. The ethical instructions are too high, the path too narrow. We need God to bring us into his kingdom. And so as his sermon comes to a close, Jesus says, look, this vision of the kingdom of heaven, it's not just radical idealism. It is realism. You can have this. But you have to ask, you have to seek, you have to knock, you have to receive. It's a gift. It's a gift to be received. And Luke's gospel makes the good thing more explicit. Here's what Jesus says in Luke's gospel. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the good gift is God himself. That when you ask, when you seek when you knock, when you persevere and keep asking God for God, for his presence, for his spirit, God does not hold himself back. God shares himself abundantly and then makes the way of the kingdom possible for you because at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is simply the rule and reign of God. And for him to rule and reign in an individual's life, that life must be opened up to him. And for him to rule and reign in a community's life, that community must be opened up to his presence. And that's how the kingdom of God comes. When we say, Lord, come rule and reign over my life. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. I need you to rule and reign over my life. He gives us the gift of his presence. He gives us the gift of his kingdom. You know, I told you the story about how God provided in incredible ways for my master's degree and to plant this church, and I highlighted the financial provision, but there was so much more provided than just finances. You know, the good gifts that I received and have received along the way, they're, they're too innumerable to number. I mean, the gift of faith alone, the gift of loving relationships of people who've supported me through thick and thin, and the gift of hope, the gift of the vision that God gave to Julia and I. Like, if you knew me in 2007, when I first started talking about planting a church, you would have said, that's the one person in Orlando, Florida, who should not plant a church. <laughs> and yet, God called me. And I was seeking him. I just wanted to be with him. And I wanted to know how my life could best serve him. And, and frankly, I love my career as a creative director. I love design. I was happy. And I was seeking God. And he said, here's a vision for you. A church in Vancouver, two stories underground. It's going to be okay. I said, okay. And he provided. But you seek first the kingdom, not the provision. Now, if we're honest, our hearts can get a little mixed up here. Like right now, if you looked at my prayer life, you would see like 92% of Alistair's prayers are like, Lord, please provide the financial year-end budget. And then I have to re-anchor myself and say, no, like, Lord, provide me your presence. Grant me that peace that surpasses understanding. Remind me of your goodness. 
Help me see that you're with me no matter how this pans out. So it's okay to ask for God to provide our needs. And we can ask and we can ask and we can ask. But the relentless, persevering, asking, seeking, knocking is not about what we need, but about who we need. That's what Jesus is inviting. If you want this vision of the kingdom, persevere. Keep asking for it. You don't have to strive to do what Jesus is doing here. You just have to ask. Jesus, I can't love my enemies. Help me love my enemies. Jesus, I'm not poor in spirit. Help me be poor in spirit. Jesus, when I pray, I like having an audience. Help me pray for the true reward. You see the difference? It's not about trying to get it right. It's about trying to walk with the Lord who can transform us along the way, who shares his presence with us free of charge. All we have to do is ask. And that is what makes the promise here so good. That's why this passage is so hope-inspiring. That's why it is such a great source of comfort, even in a difficult world where sometimes our prayers go unanswered because God himself is with us and he's for us and he's willing to give us the good gift of his kingdom, which is his rule and reign in our lives. We simply seek and ask and knock. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray.